Hello, and welcome to the Destiny Church Podcast. We trust that this will be a great encouragement to you and build your faith. Enjoy today's message. Hey, it's a joy to have you. If you're visiting with us for the first time this morning, or maybe you've been here before, but you haven't filled out a guest card, we would love to have a record of your visit with us this morning. So uh, there's a, in the seat pocket in front of you, there's a welcome card. Just fill that out. Take it back to the center back there, the Welcome Center, and they will give you a gift. I think it's a, a picture of me. <laughs> so it will be good for your garden next spring. So uh, now it's, I, I don't even know what the gift is, but they, they will give you a gift. And we're glad to have you with us. Uh, turn with me to James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. I'm going to be reading this morning from the New Living Translation. Uh, boy, this, I really don't know that I like this passage because it has hit me right between the eyes. I have wept over this I've, as I've thought about it. It's such a powerful passage. To be honest, I, I think I told Marquita that there's enough material in here to preach about four or five sermons just in these 10 verses but I'm not going to do that. I'll cut it down to about three hours today. So just to know that. James chapter 4, verse 1. What is causing the quarrels and the fights among you? You could stop right there and preach a long time. What is causing the quarrels and the fights? The, uh, I think it's the New King James that says the wars and the battles. Calls it wars between Christians. Don't they come from the evil desires of war within you? You want what you don't have, so you scheme and you kill to get it. You're jealous of what others have, but you can't get it. So you fight and wage war to take it away from them. Look, I mean, guys, this... this this is some very serious stuff. And I have been heavily burdened about this, even for this service today, because I believe God wants to talk to us and minister to us. You're jealous of what others have, but you can't get it, so you fight and wage war to take it away from them. Yet you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. And even when you ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You only want what will give you pleasure. And then look, verse 4. You adulterers, don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? I say it again. If you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. Do you think the scripture has no meaning? They say that God is passionate, that the spirit he has placed within us should be faithful to him. And he gives grace generously, as the scriptures say. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So humble yourselves before God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come close to God, and God will come close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. Let there be tears for what you have done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom instead of joy. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up in honor. This, these 10 verses are so explicit, especially the first 
four about tension among Christians. It can come in any form in any in any place, but it's it talks about Christians having war between one another, having tension, strife, malice, anger, hatred toward one another. I spoke to an individual this week, and they made a statement to me that uh, has really stuck with me this week. And they said, you know, when you see what's going on in the church, there's no question why sinners don't want to have anything to do with the church. When they see the church fussing and feuding, or Christians fussing and feuding, and they just, I mean, they say, if that's the way it's going to be, I can do that in the world. So I don't want to have any part of that. And, but that's where we are. Church splits, fussing about theology and gossiping about brothers and sisters. These are destroying many lives. I, I think, now listen to me, parents. I have a, a word for you that is, is so serious. You will come to church. You'll dance, you'll shout, you'll raise your hand, you'll praise the Lord, you'll sing at the top of your voice and show your Christianity. You'll leave church. You'll go out to eat or go home to eat, whichever way it may be, and you'll have fried preacher for lunch. Or you'll have fried worship leader for church. Or you'll have fried kids pastor for lunch. And you'll talk right in front of your kids and they hear how bad the church is and how bad the leaders are. And then we wonder why when our kids get older, they don't want to have anything to do with the church. Maybe you should look at yourself. Maybe you should understand that this is not what God wants. I, as, when I was younger in my ministry, uh, a big source of tension was strife between denominations. And I don't think that's as quite as bad today because there are so many non-denominational churches that have, I think, broken down some barriers. But when, when I first started out in ministry, the, the Baptists wouldn't have anything to do with the Assembly of God. The Assembly of God wouldn't have anything to do with the Methodists. The Methodists wouldn't have anything to do with the Presbyterian. And we just fussed and feuded, and we could not get along. We'd talk against other denominations and other churches. You know, my 24 years of pastoring at Nixa First Assembly, and as I said, it was an Assembly of God church, but my closest pastoral friends were not in the Assembly of God. My closest pastoral friends were Methodist and Baptist and Nazarene and Church of Christ because we dropped the barriers and we loved one another and we worshiped with one another. So I believe that's the way it's supposed to be. The commentary from Enduring Word on James 4, 1 through 3 says, James accurately describes strife among Christians, listen to this, with the terms wars and fights. Often, the battles that happen among Christians are bitter and severe. Have you seen that in the past? Have you seen Christians that get at one another's face and, and, and will scream and rant and rave and carry on? Barclay's commentary says, this passage does not mean that they war within a man or war within yourself so much as it means that they set men warring against each other. But it's not only denominations working against one another, but when the church, within a church, that means their church splits over the color of the carpet, over the style of worship that you have. I mean, there are all kinds of reasons. I know I've experienced it. I've seen it happen. 
But people as Christians in, in the church, and we should be loving one another and be caring for one another and reaching out to one another, but instead we, we want to fuss and fight. We want to argue. No wonder the world thinks badly of us. And you go around and say, won't you come to my church? And they look at you like you're crazy. I'm not going to your church. What terms to use? Wars and battles among Christians. I think it's on West Chestnut Expressway in Springfield that a little humor here, but I, I, I've passed, driven by that way, and there are two churches. Maybe you've noticed them. They're sitting side by side, and I mean, they're within 50 feet of one another, and it may be closer than that. I mean, it's, it, it, they're just almost inside one another. And I've thought as I was studying this message, how convenient that would be. If I get mad at this church, in 50 feet, I can walk over to my new church. And then if I get mad in my new church, I can take the 50 feet back and I can get in my old church again. Wow, how convenient is that? You say, that's crazy. No, it's not. I've seen people that, that, that have that kind of attitude. They want to fight. They want to fuss. But it's not just in the church. It's in the families. How many families do you know that Mom and dad haven't spoken to the kids or, or the brother and the sister haven't spoken to one another in 10, 15 years because of a fight they had all those years ago and yet they'll go to church and claim to be Christians. We do it. I know this is not easy and this is not something we're going to just enjoy, but it, it's the truth. Enduring Word gave me the title for this sermon. It says, The Humble Character of a Living Faith. Pastor Chad has been talking about that living faith compared to a dead faith. And then it lists three reasons for strife in the Christian community among us. Number one, what leads to strife, discord, and feuds? James asks this, how do conflicts, quarrels, and fightings originate among you? Why do we fight one another? Why do we... Why do we say if, if somebody's uh, of another denomination or another church, we'll, we'll put them down and we'll condemn them and we'll say bad things about them? Well, we, what am I talking about? We don't even have to do it from another church. We'll do it to people right in our own church and we'll condemn them. And, and God has spoken to me that I have done that. I have torn down others. The other night, Doug, we were at a football game and I don't know what it was that I said to you, but when I said it, I thought, I shouldn't say that. It's so easy to get wrapped up in it and, and, and begin thinking about that. But it says these types of strife uh, arise from our sensual desires that war in our life. We have these wrong desires, the war of your flesh versus your spirit. And when that flesh arises, let me tell you something. When the flesh takes control, you're going to fight with one another. You're going to argue with one another. We're going to have tension and strife. And nobody wants to go where that's around. We don't want to be in it. I, I have avoided particular meetings, maybe in the family or whatever it might be, because I knew there would be a lot of strife and a lot of drama. I don't want to be around that stuff because it does not lift me up. I think sometimes why we do this is because we are so miserable in our lives. And 
we think, well, okay, if I'm miserable, the only way I know to make it better is to make everybody else just as miserable as I am. So we'll gossip and we'll carry on. Uh, James 4, 2 through 4, gives us a list of, 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 of things that happen when you are living in the flesh or the dead faith as we've been hearing. Number one, you want what you don't have. Now, there's nothing wrong with wanting a, a new car or a new house. But when you begin to cheat and lie to get it, that's when it's wrong. Second thing it mentions, you scheme and kill to get it. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that you literally murder someone. But it does mean that you will, you will lie, you will cheat to get what you want. And let me tell you something, folks. I believe that many people have been destroyed by words. Your words have destroyed many lives. And I look back at myself and I, that's why this has been so heavy upon me because Pax and I, I, I know I've done it. I know that I have done that and I have hurt people. I've wounded people. And I was thinking at the first of the service, I thought, well, yeah, but there are many people I went to apologize to, but the wound's already there. The apology is good and it's necessary. I look, I, I, I dread 2024. Can I be honest with you? I dread it because it's a political year. And everything is going to be trashing one another. And the Democrats are going to trash the Republicans. And the Republicans are going to trash the Democrats. And then the Republicans and the Democrats are going to trash the independents. And we're just going to, I mean, the ads, they're not going to talk about what their view is and what their point is. Their only motive will be to trash the other. In other words, bring them down. And I just, I don't, I don't see the purpose in that. That divides a country. Give us the ideas of what you think can make it better, but don't use it just to tear somebody down. Another thing, your words have, de have destroyed many lives. You have hurt many people with your words, whether you said them to them personally or behind their back. You say, well, it's the truth, but that still doesn't give you the right to do that. You, because you don't have all that you want, so in your greed and your selfishness, you spread rumors and even lies about people. It's not on the notes, but Proverbs 28, 25 just simply says, greed causes fighting. There are two people in the Bible that are about the most sickening people that, that, that I know of. It's found in 1 Kings chapter 21, and it's Ahab and Jezebel. I mean, this story is about as disgusting a story as as any, I mean, not just in the Bible, but that about as disgusting as anything I've ever read. In verse 1, Ahab wants a vineyard owned by Naboth. Nothing wrong with that. Verse 2, uh, Ahab tries to buy or trade with Naboth. Nothing wrong with that. Verse 3, Naboth rejects him and says he doesn't want to trade or to sell. Nothing wrong with that. But look at verse 4. In verse 4, after Ahab has, has been rejected and said, no, I will not sell nor trade with you. In verse 4, it says, Ahab, now listen, here's what, here's what the message Bible says. Ahab went home in a black mood, sulking, pouting is what he was doing. He went to bed, stuffed his face in his pillow, and refused to eat. If our kids did that, we'd whoop them. We'd spit. 
bad, I'm real good. But here's a king of a nation that did this. Acted like a little child. In verses 8 through 10 though, it's all resolved because Jezebel gets in the picture. She goes to some people and she says, now Naboth, I want you to tell some lies and rumors about uh, Naboth so that we can get him hung and get him out of the picture so that my husband can get his precious little garden. And she does it. They set up a court. And in there they lie against Naboth and tell things that are not true. And sure enough, Naboth dies. And so in verses 15 and 16, Jezebel goes to Ahab and says, you can go get your garden now. And I can, I can almost mentally picture Ahab pulling his head out of his pillow with a big smile on his face like a little child that's been pouting. And he finally gets his way and he goes out and he's happy. That's exactly what James is saying the church does. We pout, we, we lie, we steal, we cheat. We will do anything to get what we want and, and, and we'll lie to, to cause trouble among God's people. It says that, the third thing, it says that you are jealous of what others have. That should not be in the church body. If somebody gets a new car, we should be rejoiced with them and say, I love your car, I'm glad that you got it. If somebody buys a new home, we should rejoice with them. But instead, we'll go around murmuring behind their back and say, yeah I, yeah, I hear they've been bezzling money. We'll say things that, yeah, I think they lied and they cheated because we don't want them to have something that we don't have. But I believe the Bible teaches unity among the brethren. It teaches us to be together, to work together across denominational aisles, across church aisles, to reach out to one another and love one another and to minister to each other. And number four is because of your jealousy that you can't have something, you fight and wage war to take it away from others. Man, oh man. I mean, James is, as, as Pastor Chad has said, he, he's not pulling any punches in this passage. He is being forthright with us. And the fifth thing, even when you ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You only want what will give you pleasure. Proverbs 21, 26 says, some people are always greedy for more, but the godly love to give. Now, I want you to hear me. It doesn't say that it's wrong to want more. It says when you're greedy for more. It's just like I've heard people quote the passage that says, uh, and they'll say that uh, money is the root of all evil. That's not true. That's not what it says. It says the love of money is the root of all evil. It's your attitude about it. God does not condemn people who want to progress themselves and improve themselves and, and get more so that they can do for others and give to others. But it's when we become greedy and we lie and we cheat. Verse 3 in the New King James Version says, You ask and you not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. The word spend here is the same word that is used to describe the wasteful spending of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15, verse 14. Do you see that? You know the story. Here was a young man that had a father who was seemingly wealthy. 
He gets tired of being under dad's authority, so he says, Dad, I'm leaving home, and I'm going to go party, and I'm going to have me a good time. Give me my inheritance. So dad gives him his money. Off he goes. And I've used the, the idea and the thought because this is the way I view it. I've seen that young man go out, and now he's, uh, he, he's the king of the walk. I mean, everywhere he goes, he's buying everything for everybody. He's got lots of money. And then one day he starts to buy something for other people, and he realizes all of his money is gone because he has spent it unwisely. That's the same idea behind this, that we spend ourselves and we spend our time trying to get what we don't have and we'll do anything to get it. Well, didn't work too well for the prodigal son, did it? Where did he end up? In a pig pen. You say, oh, that's not true. Yes, it is. That's what it says. It says that he was feeding the pigs and he ate pig food. He ate the husk that the swine were going to eat. That's what he ended up in because he was willing to spin frivolously. And yet we in the church, we, we're so willing to, to fuss and fight and feud and argue and cause trouble and cause dissension in any way that we can to get what we want. We want what we want and it doesn't matter. Now, please understand that I'm not indicating that you should be lazy and not want more. I'm not, I'm not indicating that at all. I don't think there's any way that we should reach a point where we're content. If you've got one million, I think you should strive to have two million dollars. Doesn't mean that you use it all on yourself. I'm not saying that. But the moment that we quit growing, the moment that we stop producing, we're of no value. So I don't have any problems with that. But it's, uh, it's when we begin to put pleasure and the world before God. Point number two is this, and this again was written in Enduring Word. It says, a rebuke of compromise and covetousness among Christians. In other words, Christians that, that want what everybody else has. James 4.4, 4, what, a, what a term. You adulterers, it's talking to Christians. You're ad adulterous. Don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? This, my, folks, please. This is not, and don't let anybody teach you that this is telling you that you should not have any friends in the sinners, in the sinner world. It's not saying that you should not be friends to, the, to sinners, that you should ignore them and you should reject them because they're not like you. They're not spiritual like you. Jesus spent most of his time with sinners. He was always running with sinners. He was reaching out to them and loving them. And I believe that's what God is telling us to do today. But what this passage is referring to is loving the things of the world more than God. That's why it calls it an adult. It's not talking about a sexual relationship here, but referring to loving pleasure more than loving God. And boy, are we in that age. 2 Timothy 3, 4 says of the end times that in those days... People will be traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And then 2 Timothy 4.10 speaks of a man by the name of Demas. We don't know much about him, but it says that Demas, Paul writes and says that Demas has forsaken me having loved this present world. He has forsaken me because he has loved the pleasures of the world. James is telling us that if we love the world more than we love God, we've got problems. 
He's not telling, please, folks, he is not telling us that we cannot love the world and have fun and have enjoyment and have uh, things in the world. He is not telling us that that is a sin. But whenever the love of the world becomes greater than our love for God, it's wrong. We need to seek God first. We need to love him. Point number three is this. And here again, it's wordy because this is the way they say it. The solutions for strife in humility get right with God. In humility, get right with God. In other words, ask God to forgive you is what it's saying. James has taken these first five verses and told us all the things that Christians are doing, the mistakes that Christians are making. But then in verse 6, he says that God gives grace generously. As the scriptures say, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. To me, now you may not interpret it this way, so it's my personal interpretation. It's saying, yes, you have loved the world more than me, but I'm willing to give grace, forgive, cleanse you, and help you to love me with all of your heart. God is saying, yeah, you've made mistakes, but I'm a God of grace and mercy, and I forgive and I'll love you and I'll do everything I can. He is willing to forgive you. He is more than willing, as a matter of fact. Charles Spurgeon, a great minister from the 1800s, says of grace, sin seeks to enter. Grace shuts the door. Sin tries to get the mastery, but grace, which is stronger than sin, resists and will not permit it. Sin gets us down at times and puts its foot on our neck. But grace comes to the rescue. And sin comes up like Noah's flood. But grace rides over the top of the mountains like the ark. Isn't that a powerful description? Powerful analysis of it? Verse 7 gives us the key to turn the tables on Satan. So humble yourselves, therefore, before God resist the devil and he will flee from you. The King James says, resist the devil. And, and, this, and the New Living Translation says, humble yourselves, resist the devil. Folks, there has to be a time when we as Christians resist the devil. We cannot just say, well, I'm a Christian, and so I don't have to worry about it. The devil is going to attack you. The devil is going to attack you. He's going to fight you. He's going to war against you. But you must resist him and say, no way, devil. You say, well, I've, I've always done this, and so I just, I'll keep doing it. No, stop. Stop. Turn your life around. Resist him, and he will forgive you. Humble yourself. Be willing to admit that you have a weakness. One of the things that I have believed all of my life, if you have a weakness or you have any kind of an addiction, the first step to freedom always has to be, Doug, to admit that you have a problem. If you're not willing to admit that you have a problem, then you're never going to find freedom. You're never going to find deliverance. But when you admit your problem and humbly ask God to forgive you, Jesus tells us that he will forgive us. Verse 8 says, come close to God, and God will come close to you. Look at this. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. Come close to God and he will come close to you. Can you see this? God is, is not condemning or putting us down in any way. He is using all of this to say, if you'll 
Stop these things and come close to me. Man, I'll bless you. I'll touch you. and We'll have fellowship one with another. When 50 years ago, a little bit over 50 years ago, I fell in love with this woman on the front row. But the first few months of our relationship was long distance. She was living in Tennessee and I was living in Missouri. And I did not like that. To show you how long ago it was, at that point, some of you are going to laugh. Some of you are going to think, I never knew that he was that old. But you could make phone calls. It was about half price if you made the phone call after 11 p.m. on Sunday night. So one week I would call her after 11 o'clock. And I'm telling you, I couldn't wait till 11 o'clock. I was so pumped. I was so excited to call her. And then when I knew it was her turn to call, and I met around 11 o'clock, and then finally at 11.45 when she didn't call, I'd say, well, uh, she doesn't love me anymore. But I know what she's thinking. Idle words. She's going to put that on my tombstone. And she can't wait to do it. But uh, that's why I don't sign a living will, because I'm afraid she's going to have me killed if I get a head cold. But... those times, oh, I was so excited, but it was a long distance. God says, you don't need to have a long distance relationship with me. Come close to me and I'll come close to you and we can have fellowship and we can talk all the time. We can commune all the time. But people say, I, I don't want to get closer to God because I'm afraid he'll, he'll make me weird or everybody will say I'm holier than thou or I'm so different that I can't have fun. Let me tell you something. And I want you to hear this from my mouth. I believe a Christian should have more fun than anybody in the world. Really. I, I remember when I was a kid, I'll be honest with you, I, I, I love sports, and I still love sports. But I remember a time when I was just in my teens that I, baseball was my favorite sport. I love baseball more than I love God. I was hung up on baseball. Now, there was nothing wrong with playing baseball. As a matter of fact, I played softball until I was 55, and I played on Jason's team, and finally, when I couldn't get to first base, I told Jason, I can't play any longer. So I'm not condemning it. I'm not knocking, having fun and having pleasure. But there was a time when it was more important to me than anything in the world. I put it before God. And God had to take it away from me. And the very summer, listen to me, this is how God worked in my life. The very summer that I was going to play American Legion baseball again, and they said I, I could not because of age, my family started traveling and singing and we sang for the next 15 years, recorded five albums. Yes, albums, the big ones. But we saw hundreds of people over those next 15 years come to know Jesus Christ. Now, I was, I was, I was heartbroken when baseball was taken from me. But God used it to bless others. There's nothing wrong with having fun. Nothing wrong with having pleasure. 
But just don't put it in front of God. Don't make it more important than God. And that brings me to the end thought that I have, the closing thought that I have. And I'm going to give an altar call, and it's not going to be raising your hand or saying a prayer. I'm going to ask you to make a physical act. Who do you love the most? Who do you love the most? The world or God? Who do you love the most? The world or God? You may say, oh, I, I know in our spiritual mindset, we'd say, oh, I love God more. But does your life demonstrate that? I read something years ago that has never left my mind. It was one of the most serious questions that has affected me, and I have never been able to get away from it. And I want to present it to you. You may want to think of this, and if you need to find out exactly what it says, come up to me after the service, and I'll give it to you. It's, I, I, this is what somebody wrote. I don't know who it was or where I read it. But if you were placed on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Let me read it again. If you were brought on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convince you to convict you. Have you ever thought about it that way? I remember at next to First Assembly when I was pastor there, we had a lady that came to the church, gave her heart to the Lord. She had been a pretty wicked, been pretty wild. She gave her heart to the Lord. She later told me one day, she said, there was a man who was a leader in the community of Nixa attending our church. She had worked with him, and she said, I would never have known he was a Christian. I was shocked to see him in church because I didn't know he was a Christian. In other words, she was saying he didn't act like it, and he never told anybody he was a Christian. Is that you? Is that you? Do you try to hide it? Or do you act like the world do you come to church on Sunday and raise your hand and shout and dance and all this kind of stuff? But then on Monday you live like the world? I'm going to ask you to humble yourselves this morning before God, not before man, but before God. Before the creator of this universe. I'm not going to ask you to raise a hand. I'm not going to ask you to just bow your head and say a prayer. I'm going to ask you to come clean before God and come to the front and say, Pastor, I will confess that I'm a Christian, but I have, I, this message has opened my eyes to the fact that I have put the world and pleasure and enjoyment and money and success before God. I'm going to give you a couple of a few seconds here to think about it because I want you to seriously consider this because you're going to have to answer before God if if you brought on trial for being a Christian would there be enough evidence to convict you do you love God more than you love the world do you love the world more than you love God and if you love the world more than you love God 
I'm not condemning you. I've told you, I've done it. I've been there. And I've had to examine myself this week. I've had to look in the mirror and I don't know that I've come out too spotless. But would you bow your heads with me? Maybe, that, maybe that'll make it easier for people to stand and come up here. But nobody is condemning you and nobody is putting you down. But would you say, preacher, I got to be honest with you that I've put, I have put the world before God. Would you stand and walk to the front and be honest with God? Nobody's saying you're a backslider. Nobody's saying you're not a Christian. But you just say, I want to put Jesus before the world. Anyone this morning? I could easily have done this by a raising of hands or something that way. But I felt like we needed to humble ourselves and come clean before God. Is there anyone? You say, I know that I've put the world before God. Lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. And now don't tell me that there are none of you that fit this situation. That you're lovers of pleasure more than you're lovers of God. Will you be honest with yourself and be honest? Oh, I don't want to confess this before people. Pastor, what would people think? Well, first of all, it doesn't matter what people think. It only what matters what God thinks. Someone else, come up here. Come on. Keep coming. Put God first. Matthew 6.33 says, Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Then all these other things will be added to you. Do you see that? It says, then all these other things will be. So God's not condemning things. He's not putting down things. But he's just simply saying, put Jesus first. Anyone else? Anyone else? Keep coming. Any of the staff or prayer team that want to come and pray for somebody, or anybody, any of you, feel free to come and pray for these people right now. They're being honest. They're making a, they're making a decision, a bold declaration. It's not easy to confess. It's not easy to confess that you're wrong. I mean, it's not easy. Come on. Anyone else need to come up here and, and kneel and say, it's me. I, 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 the world means more to me than God. Come on right now. Anyone else? Anyone else? Thank you so much for joining us. Special thanks to those of you who give to this ministry. It's because of you that this ministry is possible. You can check out the link in the description to give or visit destinychurch.me slash give. Don't forget to subscribe and share with your friends. We love you and have a blessed week.